welcome to Decoded. My name is Sydney Lai, and in this season, we are exploring the topics of career development that's relevant for the next generation of developers. A huge reminder, this show is brought to you by OutSystems. And look, with OutSystems, you can build some pretty awesome enterprise-level, mission-critical stuff. Let me tell you, you got aerospace companies using this, banking companies using this. I think what you really want to do is if you're going to build fast, check it out, use OutSystems. One thing to also sign up for is they have a two-week boot camp. It is free to sign up. This is to really help you build faster, learn reactive web, learn mobile, and it's relevant to any skill level of dev. I mean, this is a whole new tool. Check it out. With that being said, I'm really excited for today's conversation because it is about rejoining the workforce. Rejoining the workforce, almost regardless of industry, rejoining the workforce as a developer of different skill sets. And how do you find your way back? And really, what do you need to really, really thrive? All right, let's go. I'm excited. All right. So today I'm excited to bring on Dave Fontenot. I met Dave Fontenot several years back and to watch his journey go from developer to monk to hackathon whiz and starting his own fund based on the thesis of investing in great developers. I'm really excited to bring on this conversation. Dave, welcome back. <laughs> I really am excited to see you again. Me too. Yeah. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's, I don't, 20, 2014, is it? It's, yeah. Might have been, a yep. Mission Control. I remember the first time I saw you was in Mission mm-hmm. Control. That was a crazy house. Was that about? Yeah, I miss that place. How did you wind up there? Did yeah, you yeah, I was, I, you know, I was really trying to avoid San Francisco for the longest time. I just had this like resistance to it. The first time I visited, I like walked through the mission and felt really scared. I walked through the mission at night and it was kind of scary but eventually, after trying New York, after trying Berlin, after trying different places, I realized most of the people that I looked up to and that I wanted to grow to be more like were in San Francisco. So I figured it was time to head out there. I crashed on like an air mattress at my friend's place for the first two or three months that I lived in San Francisco. And then a bunch of friends got this really sweet house on like 18th and Mission, right in the heart of San Francisco. It's like a 10 bedroom house. And ah, just like so many of my really good friends from all the hackathons and stuff, we're all like building companies there and stuff. And I wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think what's really been awesome watching your journey is you have always ended up in the place that inspired you with the people that inspire you, right? So for some time, you lived in that hacker house with all the great devs. You moved to Thailand and other parts of Southeast Asia to live and study with the other monks. You became a musician, (laughs) right? Lived in LA, lived in New York. But even in LA, when you released that single, I was actually listening to your music right before this call, 1.2 million views on your video, right? It's it's sick beats. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And it's like, now you're in Taiwan. And I think when you surround yourself with these different types of talents, I mean, even looking back at the early days in San Francisco, in Mission House, how did you get there? Right? How did you get into programming? How did or how did you? Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions. Like, how did you get there is really the question. I understood what brought you to SF, but maybe what brought you to programming? What brought you to your initial chapter as a developer? Yeah, so I actually, you know, I grew up in South Florida. My family's Dominican. And my mom would always tell me that computers are El Diablo, computers of the devil. And like, (laughs) really, like never was encouraged to be on a computer growing up. And then I went to my dream school, University of Michigan, 
got a full ride there. And that was really sweet. Got me like out of the state. And I just remember I had this idea I was working on. It wasn't even a tech idea. It was called Dork. It was like door, like a door with a K at the end. And the K standard for knowledge. Okay. And so I was making these dorm room door covers that had all the things from your classes that you were most likely to just like forget that were rote memorization. I would like go ask the professors of like 101 classes. Be like, hey, what are the most common things people lose points on on your exams that are just straight memorization? And then I'd make these dorm room covers and sell them with that stuff. So you'd see it every time you walked out of your room. And I just wanted to build a website to sell them because I was like, oh man, I'm like selling them in person. But like, what if I could sell them online? So I heard about this thing called a hackathon and I just like showed up. I had this like fire red mohawk back then. And people were just like, back then there was this like true hacker mindset where if you're like not a true hacker, you're like not supposed to be here. And uh, yeah, I almost left the hackathon because like I was kind of there. I was like looking for someone to build this website for me. And everyone was like, dude, you're in the wrong place. This is a place for hackers, blah, 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 blah. But then this one guy, John Grizzly, he liked the idea and he was like, hey, look, I won't build it for you, but I'll, I'll help teach you how to build it. And so I didn't even have, my parents sent me to college without a computer. So I didn't even, I showed up at this hackathon. I didn't even bring a computer. I just, my parents were like, oh, there's university computers. So like we use those. So this guy, John, let me use his laptop for like a full weekend, teaching me Rails and like teaching me how to build. And it was the simplest website. This wasn't like, I wasn't trying to build like a crazy app. I was trying to build a website where you could like put your email in if you wanted to buy one of my dorm room door covers, my, my dorks. And I just remember the moment at the end of the weekend when I sent the website to my mom in Florida and I was like on the phone with her and she put her email in and hit enter. And then immediately like the email, I had it in Michigan. It was like instant. And I was like, that was your aha moment. That was my like, aha oh moment. God. I was like mind blown. I couldn't believe oh that I God. could put something on the internet. I was like, whoa, just in like a weekend, I was I was allowed to put something on the internet. The world like just let me put something there. Like, what the fuck were they thinking? Letting me put something and on now, the internet. That's the, the moment was born. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, I mean, you come in rocking with your red hair and your infamous Michigan PJ yeah, pants. Yeah, I would always wear, I would always wear PJ pants or swim trunks. So yeah, oh, I was probably wearing my, swim trunks. my Michigan PJ pants. Uh, <laughs> I went for like two, three years. Just I had like five sets of those same Michigan PJ pants. I think it's really, really hard to just introduce Dave on a caliber that I can even describe. I mean, anywhere from developer to monk to musician and now running your own VC fund that focuses on developers. I'm wondering how did you go down this rabbit hole, right? I know that you really fell in love in college. You had that aha moment that that you really expressed, but do you have an earlier memory of your love with programming, with computers? Is it some random gadget that you played with or or was it really that time in college? I didn't think there was a time before then for a while. But then when I was meditating in the monastery, this like memory came back to me. I was actually, when I was in high school, I really wanted to go to West Point, to the U.S. Military Academy. And so I did like a summer training program there after my junior year of high school. And there was like a computer cybersecurity track or something like this. And I ended up doing that one. And that was actually my first taste of like computer science stuff. And I ended up, we did this whole thing where they like taught us some like basic hacking stuff. And then we all had to like program this like missile, this little like Nerf gun missile shooter to like knock down targets. But if you like miss... 
Anyways, I ended up figuring out that the best move was to like hack everyone else's stuff, but them not know you had hacked them until the last moment. <laughs> and then when it came right. our turn, we I knew that we were hacked, so we just didn't run, so we didn't lose any points. And so everyone else, we had like had their missile shooters like turn around and shoot back at them. And then ours, we just like decided not to. We just ran like a blank program. And so we ended up winning. That was actually the first moment that I did stuff with like computers where I was like, ooh, this is fucking fun. Yeah. So that that was actually the earliest that I can remember. I always felt drawn to computers and I would play like games and stuff, but never really touched code before then. I always wanted to like develop my own games and I would like read some stuff about that, but I never really touched code until that first time at West Point. And so, wait, hold on. We just totally flew over this. You you talked about the monastery, the sabbatical. Tell us more, right? I think like as a developer, there's this time where you you work really hard, you go through this crunch, you work for these great companies. And then at some point, developers, they burn out, right? They burn out. And is that what happened? Like, tell us about your sabbatical. What was that time that you took from going hardcore as a dev and then taking that break? So actually, the reason that I took that time off is that for all of my adult life, every day I took, uh, I, I was diagnosed with ADD when I was 17. And so every day I took ADD meds. I took five ants, 20 milligram, and I wanted to get off of that. And so that sabbatical actually was, was inspired by me wanting to get off of my ADD meds. I just realized at that point in life, I've been taking it every day for like four or five years. And I couldn't, I didn't want to be living a life where I'd be taking that for like 40 years. So I did a bunch of research and looked up you know, what are some other things people were able to do for their ADD besides take the medication that were effective? And like, honestly, most of the stuff I read was that most other things weren't effective and that like people who really do have severe ADD like myself end up like dropping out of school, end up like not performing in their jobs and all this stuff unless they take the medication. But there were a couple things that that a lot of people did seem to think worked that were more on like the pseudoscience end of things, but a lot of people were claiming it worked. It was diet changes and meditation. I guess I felt much less inclined to change my diet, but I felt very drawn towards meditation. So I actually wound down my my company I'd been running at the time, Hackmatch. And yeah, I did my first meditation retreat. It was like one of these Gwenka Vipassana retreats. It was right at like the foothills of like Yosemite. And it was just this beautiful 10 days of like silence and meditation. And after that, I was in. I just wanted more I wanted to go seek out like more intense meditation. I went out to Thailand a couple months later, ended up going to China, ended up going back to Thailand and just seeking out these different like meditation masters to learn from. And to give you a sense, like when I first quit my ADD meds, the actually the reason I was diagnosed with ADD is that from 13 to 17 years old, I read zero books. I was like pretty much just like unable to read even more than like one page without completely losing my concentration. I could like sit and stare at a book for like an hour without noticing that time had passed by, not even really thinking about anything. I was like that ADD before I was diagnosed with ADD and got on the meds. And then once I quit them, I had been on the meds for four years. I was in even worse shape. So I couldn't even read when I first quit my ADD meds. But after meditating and like really developing like my practice of meditation, I was able to, I was able to read again. Like now I can meditate for like 10, 15 minutes and I can read for like 45 so it's like nowhere near like normal performance and like nowhere near like on my ADD meds. I remember when I first got on them and I was like, oh my God, I can read. Reading is amazing. This is the shit. I like gobbled down my like textbooks for class and just, I was like, wow, I missed reading so much. 
So I'm nowhere near that level of like when I, when I was on the ADD meds, but now I can read again, which is very, very helpful. So that was the inspiration for me taking that time off was really that I wanted to, it was, it was I guess, kind of like a mental health reason wanted to get off my ADD meds. I think that this is actually, this strikes me very true. I didn't know the side of you. And I don't know if you knew that this is something that we also share, mm. right? And I think that as a developer, there's there's a lot of stereotypes and there's a lot of pressure to be hyper-focused, to be very detail-oriented. And I think for those who do suffer from ADD, it's actually quite difficult to perform at a level, maybe in your career, whatever it is. If you have this taboo or this identity that drapes over you, it's like, how do you, how do you meet the expectations from a performance level? But I think time and time and again, you have proven to overcome that. I think you've also had a very fulfilling, fulfilling career, I should say, because you've touched various hearts in different ways, right? And so I think it's like from this form of taking that sabbatical, what do you think were some of the challenges that you saw, especially in your career? Because I think when you were talking about the challenges, it was more so the mental health side. It was not wanting to succumb to maybe it's medication or other crutches, but what were some of the logistical challenge when you consider how am I going to tackle my career, especially since you've always been really, really at the top of your career game? <laughs> That's funny. I never feel like I'm on top of my career game. I like, like my whole life, I never really worried about grades that much, never really worried about like a career ladder or anything. Like I've really just always, as weird as it sounds, I've always just like done what felt right. And like, I almost feel like when my heart pulls me in a direction, it would be harder for me to ignore it than to do the thing, even if the thing seems difficult to other people. So like, when I felt drawn to the meditation and stuff, it was just something I couldn't ignore. So. I think maybe from the outside, it might look like there's some level of like intentionality, but in reality, I'm extremely driven by passion and just really let my heart drive me wherever it takes me. And so there's been much less thinking about like building a linear career. I don't really spend much time thinking about that at all. Um, and there's just been more like what is searching for my truth, searching for my purpose and, and living that, whatever that ends up being at that moment. So then how did you come to that decision to come to a close and end your sabbatical? And how did you know where to go next? Well, actually, I ran out of money. <laughs> I yeah. was like traveling. Yeah. I had made a decent amount doing Hackmatch and helping engineers find the right startups to join. I introduced early engineers to like Robinhood, Com, and a bunch of other startups before they'd raise like any institutional funding. And I was able to get like recruiting kickbacks from that and stuff. And that was really great. And that was really fulfilling work. But yeah, I just, I, you know, I was traveling for like a year, year and a half living in different monasteries, really investing in myself and like my education and, and my mental health and everything. And yeah, and then at that point, I kind of had hit, in, in a sense, I had hit like a really good place in my life and that my brain was felt healthier than it had ever been. But in another sense, I'd hit rock bottom in that I had, I had hit zero in my bank account and just had enough to book a flight back home. So I flew back home and lived with my mom for a bit, figured out what I wanted to do next. And, and I remember I just, decided I wanted to make music. Like in the monastery, I remember just thinking like, ah, oh, you know what? I, I really enjoy singing my whole life. I really enjoy writing music and freestyling and like, ah, oh. like I've never really like taken that seriously. Like a lot of my friends in high school who I would sing with and stuff end up going to like Berkeley College of Music or end up going to Tisch. But that never really like resonated as like the path for me. Like I just, I couldn't take it seriously, even though I enjoyed it so much. And I'm not sure what was blocking me there. But after the meditation, I totally like whatever was blocking had left. And I was like, oh, no, I really, really enjoy making music. So so I also needed to like fund myself. So I ended up joining 
Gigster and like working on different projects and doing a bunch of like digital transformation consulting for like Fortune 500s and all kind of stuff like that, building some like really awesome engineering teams. But the thing that was driving me in that next chapter of my life was that I just wanted to make music. So that's what I did. Yeah. And we wrote like 200 songs in those two years. So that's been really cool. We're still, we end up forming a band called Pink Roses uh, at the beginning of last year and and we're still doing it. We actually just recorded us our latest song remotely. I recorded it here in Taipei, the vocals, and my bandmate and our producer were in the studio in LA and we were just sending stuff back and forth and we just released a song. It's called oh Another God. Girl. Yeah. And we're actually, actually, <laughs> I'm about, we, we put, we put some uh, traditional Hanza on the song art. Oh. Well, the kind of Mandarin name of the song. Yeah. Because we wanted to hint that we're actually playing our next show here in Taipei on October 9th. What? Oh my gosh. All right. I got to get my friends to go out <laughs> and see you. I was listening to your song right before you came on. And I remember you back in the hackathons, back in the day, seeing you walking around with a ukulele. <laughs> and then the last time I saw you was at your sold out show in New York City. Oh. So it is, you're going from Michigan PJ Pants playing a ukulele and playing a sold out show in New York City with with your long rock of hair <laughs> and just, it's really badass. I mean, and as you've taken these different career paths, different turns, may it be a sabbatical, meditation, music, what do you think are some skills that stuck with you? And what are some, I don't know if they atrophied along the way or maybe like, oh, yo, I, I totally forgot how to do that. Yeah, so I think it was interesting. When I was leaving to go to the monastery, one of my friends like pulled me aside and he was like, Dave, I'm worried about you taking this time away from people because your natural state is that you're extroverted and you have this superpower. I'm a one-on-one extrovert. I don't like hanging out in groups. If I go to a group thing, it's either for me to like dance, sing, or to meet new people that have one-on-ones. I'm like not there to like hang out at the thing. I very much struggle in group conversations, but I love one-on-ones. And what my friend Vikram was telling me was like, Dave, your superpower is that you have like an infinite capacity for like one-on-ones and just have like such a high level of presence in them. And if you go to the monastery and go away from people, then you might lose some of that capacity, it might atrophy. And I was like, fuck, you're right. That could be something that I've like built up over time and that atrophied. So that was probably the biggest thing. Like I'd say like biggest thing that drives me is I just love people. So I was a little worried that that would atrophy. Honestly, now I'm like doing the fun and stuff and I'm having one-on-ones all day and I just love people and I love having one-on-ones. So like it didn't end up being a problem, but it was something I worried about for a second. Like my friend brought it up as like a valid concern and yeah. So I run, I run an experiment every year that's like, in a way, the opposite of who I was previously. And so my experiment that year was to spend a majority of my time alone. So I was a lot of like living in the monasteries and that stuff. So yeah, he was worried about that experiment. But I really love, I love these experiments. I love exploring like the opposite side of the way I've been living my whole life and the way I'm programmed to see what's there. And then once I know what that other extreme looks like, I'm able to find a much better balance for myself. So yeah, I was worried that that might atrophy, but my programming skills definitely atrophied. No one should pay me to write code anymore. <laughs> like that, yeah. that definitely, even just like getting off my ADD meds, like on my ADD meds, I was like still like not a great coder. Like I was, I've never been an amazing coder. I can build shit like quickly and hack stuff together, but like not really. No one should pay me to write code. And especially now that's atrophied a ton. I still, I... I picked it up like a few months ago and like built something like really small, but, and I really enjoyed that. I still have like a strong enjoyment for it, but yeah. yeah. What do you like to build? 
I like to build really little like useful tools. Like one of my favorite things I built was this Chrome extension called moves.io. I used to help a lot of engineers in their transition moments. And this is still like one of the passions of my life. I think the most important problem in the world that I want to solve for at least is to make sure that talented people are in roles that make them come alive. So I love catching like my really talented friends and just like talented engineers in general in their transition moments, because that's such a moment for them to like stop and reflect for a second and find something that really makes them come alive. And so in doing that, I've probably helped like thousands of engineers now navigate these transition moments. One of the big approaches that I recommend people do is don't apply to like a job, figure out who you want to work with. A lot of that approach is built around if you see a startup that looks cool, don't just say like, oh, wow, that looks really cool. Look up the founder's name on Crunchbase, on AngelList, and shoot them an email and like ask them questions and drive with your curiosity and let them know you're interested. So I built this Chrome extension called moves.io. That's super, super simple. It's just you can go on any startup's website, you click the button, and it gives you the founder's email. So simple. I remember it. I used it for a long time. Is it still up and running? It's not up and running. I need to get it back up and running. Oh, man. But yeah, I had like, at one point, I had like 80,000 startup founders emails or something on there. It was was really cool. And I I think that it's true, right? Like I I see you transition from just mentoring, may it be from developers, mentoring yourself, finding mentors at the monastery. And it's like, how do they re-enter the workforce? How did you find yourself back into the world that is not monkeying around every day? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. So there's the music angle of things, but I think that's like probably less relevant to this, to to the audience and the, the folks listening here. So breaking back into like working in tech, honestly, a friend really helped me out. So I have this friend, Sharik Hashme, and he was at Gigster and like, I kind of let him know the type of work that I really enjoy doing. And he let me know, hey, we actually need more product managers here at Gigster to help run these projects. I was telling him how, you know, I'm not that good at writing code. No one should, people probably shouldn't pay me to write code. But he was like, oh, dude, but you you have engineering experience and you've brought together a bunch of teams at these hackathons and essentially like run the team those weekends. You'd be perfect for this. And I was like, oh, I don't really have the qualifications. I've never really been like a PM before, but Shark took a chance on me. So that was honestly, I was fortunate and privileged to have a friend who was willing to kind of stick their neck out for me. Uh, and he helped me land the role at Gigster doing product management on, on freelance projects there. And I had a blast doing that. Honestly, it was so powerful because I had taken about a year and a half off and I was afraid. Oh, wow. So a year and a half. That is sizable. That's a sizable time. for Yeah, sure. yeah. Because I really wanted to have kind of like an open-ended and definite, like I thought about ordaining as a monk. I thought about wow. like, just like, I was like, the world had really drifted away from me when I was deep in the monastery to a point where like, the point where I came back was like my family almost started to like fade away, like the attachment to like my family. And that's when I kind of like, I remember specifically with my abuelita, like I freaked out once I started feeling it like hard to like remember her image. That was when I was like, oh shit, whoa, I, I'm like going in deep. Do I want to go in this deep? Yeah, so I had gone really, really deep there and didn't know if I'd be able to come back. And also I, I wasn't on my ADD meds anymore. So I was like, okay, like have I actually, my whole goal of the meditation was to build natural concentration through meditation. And it was time to see if like I had actually done that and I could even be like a functional member of the workforce not taking my ADD meds. So Gigster and and Sharik and them taking a chance on me, it was, I worked my ass off, like really wanted to like make sure that I constantly felt like I was failing. I had the worst imposter syndrome. I had like, before I went and meditated, well, before I quit my ADD meds, I had a lot of confidence. I had like built up a lot of confidence. I knew I was good at what I did. 
And like after quitting my DD meds, I didn't know if I would still be good at what I do. And then I was doing something I'd never done before. And I was honestly just really scared. And luckily, I had great mentors at Gigster. So when I first joined Gigster, instead of diving to a project at first, what I first did is I reached out, they had like a leaderboard of the top performers on the platform. And so I reached out to all the top performers. And I asked them uh, if they could jump on a call with me, and I could just ask them a bunch of questions. And one of the most helpful questions I asked, and I remember I asked the number one person, the number one product manager on Gigster this question, it ended up being like super valuable. I asked, what are you doing that everyone else isn't doing that makes you special? Oh, yeah. And a lot of the other people had like similar answers. They would all think they're like, oh, I do this one thing really well. But a bunch of like the number two to 10 had like pretty roughly the similar answers, whereas like over and over again, I'd hear the same thing. And I was like, okay, I should probably do that thing. The number one person had a list of like eight things she did that no one else was doing where I was just like, holy shit, that's why she's number one. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, she asked me not to share any of them. So I can't share any of them with you. But right. But Justine, she crushes it. And I ended up like learning a lot from her and bringing that into what I was doing. And it was super helpful. Yeah. So worked my ass off there. And like that really helped me build a lot of confidence there. And even constantly when I would be delivering the projects, I'd be like, oh man, I like didn't work hard enough or like do enough or blah, blah, blah. But then whenever I'd present the projects, like people would be blown away pretty consistently. So over time, was able to kind of regain some of my confidence. And honestly, like it took me a while to rebuild my confidence. And I'm still in that right now. Like I'm not as confident as I was before I quit my ADDM ads even today. But now with the fund, I have the best co-founder, my, my co-founder, Lucy Kuo. She starts Scale AI. She's really helped me build, build confidence in myself. And really, like as much as we're, we're kind of like co-founders on the thing, I really look up to her as a mentor. She teaches me so much. So yeah. you kind of mentioned the mentors thing. Like that's been such a driving force in my life. Anywhere I go, I drive with my curiosity and I end up finding these people who are like willing to take a chance on me or really kind of take me under their wing. I remember my first tech mentor is this guy, Eric Torenberg. We both went to Michigan and I met him at like the second hackathon that I ever went to. It was, called, it was a startup weekend, actually. Startup weekend, shout Startup out. weekend. And he ended up building this freestyle rap battle platform. And it was, I love freestyling. So it was oh, dope. It was dope. It was called so rap.fm. Yes. It was so hype. Like everyone's like freestyling at this startup weekend. It's dope. Anyways, he ended up taking a chance on me back then when I was like 19. This is after my freshman year of college and gave me my first like tech job. He gave me like an internship as their testing intern. For lack of a better term, I was like there. Yeah, I'm not even going to use that term. Anyways, I would have to do just like, I would have to figure out how to get people on the platform so you could test it. And the platform was broken and all this stuff. And I was trying not to figure out how to like debug why it wasn't working and recreate, be able to reproduce the bugs. It was a pretty shitty like, first job, I felt so grateful to be like working on a real startup and stuff. They'd raise a little bit of funding, all this stuff. So he's been a mentor of mine for years. This guy, Eric, like he's my most proactive mentor. There was at least like a year or two where he would just proactively call me out of the blue and just be like, Hey, how can I help you, man? Oh, wow. Having cheerleaders, you know? Yeah. I think it's a huge piece. Yeah. Mentors. I mean, I think that people always talk about it, right? Oh, you got to get a mentor. You got to get a cheerleader. I mean, I think even more so it's someone who is proactive. And I think that everything that I've seen you do so far, even in your music career, I'm like, yo, he, he learned stuff in the startup world that he definitely brought into his music career as well. Oh, right? 100%. Like, yeah, I've been studying. I was like, yeah, sure. It's music. But like, this guy is a lean machine, 
walk us through that. Like, what are, what do you think was translatable? Like, what did you bring over? And, and then of course, right. Who was your mentors in the music industry? Yeah. So we brought over so much stuff from like our startup mindset to music. So my other, I guess I have two co-founders. Mm-hmm. I have two lives yeah. that I'm living. I have like the, this music track yeah, and this, and this fun. And my co-founder on the band, we call each other co-founders. Funny. It's my bandmate, Nate, he also comes from startups. So he had started a startup in music tech called Set the Set that like ended up like Drake used, BTS, like everyone used their software. He ended up having an exit and now works at United Masters, which is like this like tech enabled label. Anyway, so he really knows the music industry. So he's definitely like my mentor. He's like, he manages, even though he's part of the band, he manages our band and everything. So I've just, I've mainly learned stuff from him. He's just been great. But we took a lot of the startup mindset into music and it's been super helpful. So what we did our first year making music, we focused on being prolific. Instead of focusing on making things perfect, we wrote 100 songs and we would just record them on our iPhone and release them on Spotify. So we wrote as many songs as possible. Our goals that year were to write as many songs as possible and to play as many shows as possible. So we had a year where any opportunity to play a show, every day we were writing music. Every single day I went over his place and we wrote music in his bedroom. That is brilliant. And we sucked in the beginning. Like when I listen back to our original stuff, honestly, I still have like, it has still has a place <laughs> in my heart. Like our first song's called Good and I still like it. I still like... I enjoy it. But like compared to where we are now, like we got a lot better. I'll say that much. But we just knew like we needed to get a product out into the market and iterate quickly and see what people liked. So that's what we did. We just every day trying to to write new songs, trying to play new shows and like really, really hustling, trying to find our product market fit with our audience. And for that first year, honestly, like we didn't really find it. I would convince friends to like come to all our shows and stuff. And that was fun. But they would be coming because they were like our friends. We had a lot of friends, which is amazing. We were based in San Francisco where I have like the strongest community. We didn't really have like fans who like didn't already know us. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Wait, so then how do you actually, if we take if we take that line of product market fit, how does it actually work with music, right? Because it's like, well, you can A-B test the colors of a call to action button. You can figure out, you know, what framework works. But like, how does that actually work when you're trying to figure out the vibe that a generation wants, right? Yeah. So at a certain extent, it is different and that you have to like really just create your own vibe. So there's a certain extent of like, we just wrote a ton of songs and we put them out there and we like wanted to see how people reacted. But like all in all, like we didn't really end up taking into account which ones people liked more than others that much. At live shows, we were able to see how people reacted to different things and kind of build up some like training data of that. But like all in all, like that part of the product market fit didn't end up translating over that well. Like we tried that approach, but it didn't translate over that well. So we ended up just like more driving our music in a direction of the music that we just genuinely really enjoy and the music that we wanted to be listening to. So that part ended up just being like more around us finding our own voice and less about product market fit. Now, the part that is around that does relate to product market fit is like your viral coefficient. A lot of artists will say like, oh, I'm putting music out. And like, I just don't have the marketing dollars or this or that, that part, when you have a song that's hitting, like we could spend a dollar on ads, get 10 clicks, but then that somehow turns into like a hundred streams, right? So we were able to see as we started releasing, like once we launched Pink Roses, then it was more about really putting a lot of love into each song that we already knew people liked, that we had played like acoustically and going into the studio and fully producing this song that we already knew was kind of resonating with people. And then from there, once we release the songs, I mean, we look at all the data and we see which songs are gaining traction. And a lot of our growth of our music is just like organic, right? 
And then with Don't Give Up On Me, that was the song that both in person, even when we play it just piano and vocals in like Nate's bedroom for friends, or if we play it at a show, that one just like really was hitting. It was really resonating with people. So we made like the biggest investment that we've made in our music so far. We spent $15,000 making a music video. And we took a chance on, on a director who had never directed a music video before. He was the guy who's doing all our what? photo shoots and stuff. And he's done, okay, he's done like Rihanna's right. photo shoots. He's done a lot of like, like really top-notch, like super interesting photo shoots that are the vibe we're going for. But he told us, hey, look, I want to do my first music video. I want to do it with y'all. And his heart was just in it. And he got the song and we could tell that he felt it like viscerally. And so we made a big investment in that song. And that ended up paying off a ton. Like we only spent like a few thousand dollars marketing that song. And it ended up getting 1.2 million views on YouTube, like more than like yeah. any of our streams on Spotify or anything. Blew my mind. Yeah. From that element, I think like a lot of artists think if they just had marketing dollars, they could spend marketing dollars. It would That's what is missing for them. But if you don't have product market fit, it doesn't help at all. So that's where it translates over, I think, a lot in that like if you start marketing out a song or start focusing on growth too early, like startups, some startups will spend a bunch of money on marketing and growth, but they don't have their churn rate is way too high. Whereas with Don't Give Up On Me, we send that song to one person and they send it to two friends and then those friends send it to two friends and it's just grown from there. Mm, that network effect. Yeah, has like that right. viral coefficient there. So yeah, that really translates over for sure. And so I think what it also is so interesting is how you are able to cherry pick probably isn't the right word, but bring in so many lessons learned of, all right, I'm a developer, I'm a student. All right, I am going to launch the largest hackathon in the world. Right. And then you're moving on building projects. You become a monk for a stint. And then all of that just accumulates and then culminates into the moment of I'm going to apply all of these lessons into the world of music. I mean, frankly, it doesn't really matter the industry at this point, but it's like, how do I move all of this and tackle new industries, the next industry, something like that? That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. I think, I mean, I just really love people and I really love making music. So it's, there's not, I guess there's some synthesis that happens, but for a lot of it, I just really, I'm doing what I really enjoy doing. Like I honestly, people say like, oh man, you like make music too. Like, it's so cool that you're like following your passion and like, Hey, I'm passionate about music, but you know what I'm even more passionate about than music is helping people start things. So I really think the most, like if, if I focus all my energy on solving for talent allocation on the most talented people doing the things that make them come alive. That's what ends up speeding up every other problem in the world being solved. If we took the, that's a really take good, talent, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. If, we, if we can help talented people find roles that make them come alive, every problem in the world will be solved faster. And there's nothing I see make people come more alive than starting their own thing. There's so many times where I'd be helping engineers in their transition moments and they would describe the startup they're looking for. Because I would only focus on helping people find startups that were fewer than 15 employees. Because I, I think like if you join early, that's when you really come alive and when you really have skin in the game and when yep. you really get meaningful equity. So I'd focus on that. The vision. But a lot of times I'd talk to engineers and they'd be telling me, hey, I'm really looking for a startup that, that does X and Y and Z and is like this and this type of culture. And I'd be like, hey, you have a very clear vision of what you're looking for. Are you sure you don't want to just start that thing? Yeah. And a lot of people, oh, like, whoa, I never, a lot of people just don't feel licensed 
to start something. Right. So maybe the credibility, it could be, you know, the imposter syndrome, but I think you're absolutely right. It's when you are able to empower others to build, that is the insanity that you see. And I absolutely love the approach. And really, if we take a step back and we look at back-end capital, first of all, the name is brilliant. When I read <laughs> the name of your fund, I was like, I see what you did there. But it's like, yo, I'm a dev, I can do so much, but if I can empower all these other builders to keep building, that is exponential Exactly. Yeah. And that's generally my approach. I love taking the meta approach to things. So like I started the largest hackathon in the world, MHacks at at Michigan in 2013. And instead of running it the second time, like there was a director who was way better at running stuff than me. It was Tom Erdman and Michelle Liu, who kind of took the torch from there. I dropped out of school and started traveling for like two years straight, helping scale the hackathons at all the other major engineering universities, because I wanted to take kind of that meta approach, because I felt that would be what was most impactful. So I, I think that's generally my approach for things. I started Hackmatch, like my own startup, and then now being able to get a bunch of people going. I love like about 40% of the investments we make were like the first check-in. And like, that's what I really love is when you can be that kind of like, I mean, usually they always say you want to invest in people who are going to start it anyways, but sometimes that person was going to stay at their job for a couple more months. And if we're like, hey, look, if you're ready to leave right now, we'll back you. That can be the type of thing that gets them going, that makes that binary flip happen. So I really love... I love early stage investing. I love helping people build their early teams. For me, I love community building and there's no community like building a team. People spend eight hours plus a day working with their team at work. That's like one of the most valuable communities you could build. I mean, there's such incentive alignment. Everyone has skin in the game. Everyone's working towards the same goal. Everyone's like on a team. So just such an opportunity with every founder that we back for us to help them build like a really strong community with their team. So I really, I really enjoy that. I also think what's really exciting is this added perspective of you are a developer, you were an active developer, and now you know how to also support and mentor other developers, right? There's kind of that shift. It's it's a shared identity, but a shift in terms of you were mentored for so long and now you are also mentoring. And how did back in capital begin, right? So of course I've I've heard of Lucy, I've seen her, I've seen her in the news and I I've known a little bit about what she's done in the past, but like how did you guys come together and how did back in capital form? I think I think it makes really sense. The people that you're trying to serve, your investment thesis makes a lot of sense. But yeah, how did this come about? So I think Lucy and I, our thesis for back in capital is that we invest in brilliant engineers as early as possible. And I think that's like what I've been doing for years. Like it's just taken different forms than capital, right? It's taking my time, making intros, different stuff like that. But really back in capital started so Lucy founded a company called Scale AI. It's now worth like a billion dollars. And she left a couple years ago and started investing, just investing her own money and some scout money. And her investing was going really well. So about a year and a half later, her first investment had already 22x. A bunch of her investments had been marked up. And she wanted to expand out her investing practice, but didn't want to liquidate any of her scale stock because she really believes in scale and they were doing really well. So Lucy and I, a little backstory, Lucy and I met at the first pen apps, the first big okay, pen apps, the yeah. first what we like, maybe we refer to as like mega hackathons now. It was like 320 people. I still remember meeting her on Locust Walk. She was, I had already heard of her. She was kind of like a legend because she would build all these viral apps and stuff. So we've known each other like since she was like 18, I was 19, our entire adult lives. We lived together at Mission Control, actually. When we first moved to San Francisco, we lived in the oh, same house. I forgot about and then that. I, when I was living in LA making music, she would crash at my place all the time when she came to LA because I lived close to Barry's. Nice. So she was telling me about how like her investment was going well. She was asking me for deal flow because she knows I know probably more engineers than just about anyone else in the US from all the hackathons. 
And we ended up talking about deal flow and just like spending more time thinking about that stuff. And she had wanted to expand out her investing and but didn't want to liquidate any of her skill stocks. So at a certain point, she's like, hey, Dave, maybe we should just start a fund together. And two weeks later, we had like hit our initial target for the fund and were like had started investing. It, it came together like super quickly. I had been doing research for a while because with Hackmatch, I would introduce engineers to startups super early and I would get like kickbacks if the if the startups had kickbacks for, for introducing people they end up hiring. But I always knew that that model didn't work. And when I meditated on it, I was like, holy shit, some of the startups I introduced people to super early on ended up going on to be huge companies. I introduced one of the earliest engineers to Robinhood. My friend Chris O'Neill introduced like the second engineer at Com that's now worth like a billion. Robinhood's worth like 8 billion. And I really wish I had taken equity instead of recruiting fees. So I realized that while I was meditating. So about a year before we started the fund, I made a post and asked who of my friends invest and probably like 100 friends ended up reaching out. And so I sent them all like a survey asking them about their experience investing. So she knew I had been doing research on that. And yeah, when I was talking to friends, they were all telling me like it's the most rewarding thing they've ever done is like back people they believe in and stuff. So, so I'd already kind of been thinking about starting a fund. And then as soon as Lucy, Lucy is one of the smartest people I've ever met. So as soon as she offered to start the fund with me, I'm like, hey, I don't know why you want to start this fund with me, but I'm, I would be super excited to start a fund with you. So yeah, hands down. It's a no brainer, right? And yeah. What, what yeah. Of, so and we've known each other for years. For, and then? So we, we invest in brilliant engineers as early as possible. And we use the term brilliant very intentionally. So brilliant has this connotation of like a light shining. And it's like a light that other people are attracted to. So you can effectively translate it to we invest in charismatic engineers. It's not just about them being brilliant in terms of like the smartest engineer. It's about them having the type of brilliance where other engineers are attracted to them. And a big reason that we focus on this thesis is that our value add as a firm is that we like to help build the early team. And if the founders are brilliant engineers and I introduce someone to them, they'll be able to hire that person. Whereas like, let's say a founder is non-technical and I introduce an engineer to them, I might have to introduce like 10 engineers for them to close one. If we invest in a truly brilliant engineer, almost every top engineer I introduce them to ends up wanting to join. Right. So we just our value add goes way further if we invest in brilliant engineers. If I really dig into the thesis, the actual like underlying thinking of the thesis is that it's not that you have to be that you have to have like engineering skills to start the next billion dollar company. It's that the type of young people right now who are smart, who are ambitious, who are entrepreneurial and who are in school in this latest generation, they're learning how to code. And the selection bias of people who aren't learning how to code, you know, there's still some amazing founders there. But like nowadays, there's more students going to hackathons than studying CS. There's like 100,000 plus students going to hackathons, only 65,000 studying CS, right? So like the type of student who would have studied finance 20 years ago, who would have studied business 20 years ago, they're not necessarily studying computer science, but they're definitely learning how to code. So it's not that there's been like a shift in like, the same people who are studying computer science 20 years ago are starting the companies today. It's actually that the young people who are going to start companies who are ambitious and entrepreneurial learn how to code today. Mm, it's the same yeah. set of young people who are starting companies like 20 years ago, just instead of focusing on finance or banking, they're focusing on building stuff. So that's the shift there. Yeah, that's a really good perspective because it's now, I don't know if ubiquitous is the right word, but the idea is that they are learning to program with or without the traditional path of becoming a developer, right? And so as you find these different types of technical talent, then it's also trying to decipher amongst all the technical talent, 
what kind of talent do they also draw in? Because as you know, ideas are dime a dozen. What makes or breaks a startup, a project, an idea isn't the idea itself. It's really the talent that goes around it, lifts it up, makes it real. Hell yeah, for sure. 100%. I think something that we both really share is, is this journey of, you know, hackathons have really shaped and nurtured our educational process as developers. And I'm curious to hear, like, what's up with hackathons nowadays? And I, I say this genuinely because I remember, like, I used to fall asleep underneath tables and <laughs> hop around in my sleeping bags. And then we also had like just all these really dope catered meals. And now, I mean, look, there's a pandemic, but you know, don't, don't worry about that. I, I'm talking about like now I feel like all the hackathons are like online and I don't remember when was the last time I saw a giant hackathon that I got to enjoy. Where did those go? What happened? So what's interesting is, you know, I felt similarly to you when I came back from the monastery, but I went to Penapps last year. And what I realized is that the hackathons haven't changed. We've changed. The hackathons are stronger than ever right now. These young people are so inspired. They're so pumped, just like we were back in the day. We've just grown up a little bit. And it's like, you know, the idea of really care about my sleep now, much less likely to, you know, pull an all-nighter for a weekend and stuff. But the hackathons are still going super strong. They're stronger than ever. They've kind of like made it into the mainstream, which as much as like the true hacker types that were there in the beginning, like oh, all these business people coming to the hackathons and building stuff. To me, that was like the goal all along for me is that I knew there were other kids like myself that just didn't have access to computers growing up that didn't have encouragement to program and, and just didn't have that opportunity. And so I wanted to spread that with the hackathons. That's why I encouraged all the hackathons to scale up as much as possible. Because to me, the idea of, someone wanting to build something for a weekend and not being able to like go and do that in that community in that like thriving environment of a hackathon that made me want to cry when hackathons had buses come and there were like a seat that was empty on the bus like i would be so sad i was like oh my god that seat could have been someone who had their life changed oh so what i can gosh. tell you is people are still having their lives changed at these hackathons like it's so easy as a developer now that we've been in the field and stuff to be a little jaded about it but young people who, especially young people who have never built something before, that's where the real impact happens at a hackathon. People still think hackathons are for hackers. No, no, no. Hackathons turn normal people into hackers. It's like the gateway drug for people to get into <laughs> that's building true. stuff. That's and it brings in a true. much more diverse group of people into programming than, than we have in the industry already. Like hackathons right now are way more diverse than they were when we were doing hackathons and are bringing in a much wider net of different majors, different races, you know, across genders, everything, a much, much wider range of people are going to hackathons. And that's part of part of what happened here is that it's gone mainstream. So like, it's easy for me or you to say, Oh, it's gone mainstream, it's lost its luster, blah, 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 blah. But like, it's become much more diverse, way more people have access to them. We've gotten way better at throwing them. We still haven't figured out the Wi Fi situation, the Wi Fi still like goes out all the time in hackathons. But yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to Mike Swift from Major League Hacking actually yesterday, he's been a mentor of mine for years. I was the first advisor when, when they were getting that off the ground. And Swift was telling me, even with the pandemic, with the shift to online, even more people are participating in hackathons because there's just more access now. So of course, it, it loses some of the magic of the in-person, but a lot of people who, you know, hackathons still aren't ubiquitous. They're still not everywhere. And a lot of the people who didn't have access now have access to these big online hackathons and stuff. So I still think it's the start of this whole wave of hackathons. I think there's like the next wave of startups that are going to be formed. It's not the hacks 
I have this post that hackathons aren't about the hacks. So I think people sometimes go, oh, you can't actually build something meaningful in a weekend. Blah, 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 blah. It's not about what you build in the weekend. It's not about what you start building in a weekend. It's about the relationships that yes, you build that weekend. Dave, that's a hundred percent true. I always say people who are looking for a co-founder, yo, take them to a exactly. hackathon and see if you can survive for a weekend. And look, all the ideas that you and I have come up with during the hackathons, they don't exist anymore. But those relationships, those friendships, I, I'm hanging out with a friend tomorrow for dinner at a hackathon that I met in 2014. Exactly. Right? So it's just like, we're still friends to this day. And he's, he's a better dev than he's ever been before. And it is the life, like the life that we feel at these hackathons. And, and really, to your point, is just seeing and watching people being able to live out their vision, share that vision with others, even in the span of two days. And, and the biggest thing, like, I mean, hackathons are such a powerful place to try on potential co-founders. And that's like the biggest challenge, I think, for a lot of people when they want to start something. It's like YC, like one of the biggest reasons that, that startups fail either during YC or after YC is actually that the co-founders break up. And so you can know someone for years and still not know if they're going to be a good co-founder. And you really never know till you're in it. But the best proxy for knowing is to build something together under pressure. And hackathons are the perfect place to do that. So I think I think that's the, the really cool thing about hackathons. And one of the biggest things Lucy and I are trying to solve for is how to help people find the right co-founders and, and really make sure that people are with the right match. Because that's the thing that happens before the best companies are started. So... So we've been thinking a lot about this. We started the Hacker Fellowship at the beginning of this year as like a 10-week residency for top engineer founders who were starting stuff at the same time. And it essentially was like a 10-week hackathon, except you actually sleep every night. We have a chef cooking healthy meals. It's like built around having really good mental health, but also working really hard and being in a time-pressured environment with people. And that was just a magical experience, really letting people get to try on working with each other in like this kind of like hackathon format, but with like enough sleep and health and everything. I'm looking forward to after COVID expanding that out. And in fact, I'm actually here in Taiwan. I'm trying to figure out how to work with the government here to go through one of their visa programs to actually run the next batch here, even before COVID's taken care of in the US. Oh my gosh. Well, that's really exciting. I'm going to have to, if possible, find my way back and go find you. But I think that being said, I think as you're building this next chapter, as you are really finding not, not the best, but the most brilliant folks and teams to work with, I'm really excited about that. And I think if there's two ways to reach you, if they want to listen to your music, check you up on YouTube, right? Pink, Pink Roses. Pink Roses. And yeah. <laughs> and if they're a developer and they want to build with like-minded folks, reach out to you at uh, Back in Capital, right? Yeah, yeah. The best way to reach me is to hit me up on Facebook. If you type in bit.ly slash hell yeah with a bunch of L's, you'll find me on Facebook, Dave Fontenot. And just shoot me a message on Messenger. You don't have to add me as a friend. Just shoot me a message. I have my inbox open. And if you meet engineers who are charismatic, if you meet an engineer who can also do sales, who can build stuff and sell stuff, definitely hit me up, introduce me to them, would love to back them. And yeah, honestly, Sydney, I love what I'm doing right now. Like the two lives that I'm living right now, making music and backing founders as early as possible. I could see myself doing this for the rest of my life. This is incredible. Well, Dave, I really appreciate you taking the time today to chat. And it's it's just been so great to catch up. And I'm really excited the lives that you've impacted as well as yourself. Hell yeah. All right. Welcome back. What a conversation. I forgot to tell you, you're listening to Coded. Don't forget. All right. 
I really appreciate you guys joining me for this episode. I think this was a pretty mind-blowing episode. Just watching your journey transition from developer to musician to monk, I mean, you name it, it's this is where we at. I think that this just really shows that there are different types of developers and yeah, I'm here for this. You know what also I'm here for is I'm really appreciative that you guys are also sticking along with us. If you want to keep listening, please do subscribe. I really appreciate hanging out with you and I hope you find this information helpful. If at the very least, the interview's interesting because I like to think that we talk about conversations that's not usually discussed, but let's see what's next, all right? All right, you guys. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, Catch you next time.